Do you ever uh, query the promises of God? That all things, for example, work together for good. Do you ever query that? That God will supply all your need. That you will not be overtaken by temptation. Or do you ever listen to or look at what God has said and you wonder, will it ever actually happen? In our journey through the Bible, we have already spent two services looking at Abraham's story. And this morning we're going to pick it up in Genesis chapters 21 and 22. So if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to it? There should be Bibles in the pews as well. For those who were here this time last year, some of what I'm going to share is a repeat of of something I shared then. But back in chapter 12, God had dramatically called Abraham and promised to make him into a great nation. And Abraham was 75 years old. His wife was 10 years younger and they had no kids. And so if this was actually going to become a reality, then something needed to happen and it needed to happen quickly. Problem was it didn't. And by the end of chapter 20, Sarah is still barren, and more worryingly, she's now 25 years older. So much time has passed, so little has changed, and yet, God had said. And have you ever been there? Wondering if, or wondering when. But look at Genesis 21 verse 2. It says, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. And no wonder that 90-year-old mum and everyone else who hears about this according to verse 6 has a laugh. Because this is unusual. This is unexpected. This is surprising. Or is it because, listen to or look at the ex- as these extracts from the first three verses of chapter 21. The Lord was gracious to Sarah as he said. The Lord did for Sarah what he promised. Sarah became pregnant at the very time God had promised. You see, God is, and if you hear nothing else this morning, just hear this. God is true to his word. And his timing is perfect. But that doesn't stop us from wondering sometimes, does it? Especially whenever your current circumstances create uncertainty. Or... It feels like you've been waiting for what seems like ages, maybe even a lifetime, for some of the promises that God to become a reality in your life. And if nothing else, this story reminds us that if God has said or promised something, then he will, he will see it through. And although everybody else is having a laugh, Abraham isn't. Abraham appears to have got this. Because here's what Paul says in Romans 4. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. And so the challenge right up front this morning is this. Are you and I fully 
whatever that means. But are we fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he has promised? Or are some of us wavering through unbelief? Abraham's body was as good as dead. Sarah's womb was dead. And yet Abraham still believed. His faith was stretched, but not crippled. And I have no doubt there are people here this morning. And at times you wonder, is God really in control? Will the promises of God ever become a reality? And so for some people, your faith feels a bit stretched, maybe even stretched to breaking point. And yet Isaac's birth stands as a constant and an eternal reminder that what God says, God does. It's actually only a matter of time, 25 years for this couple. And Abraham and Sarah now have a son and they all lived happily ever after. It would have been a nice next phrase to read, but this isn't a fairy tale. And so a few years down the line, the atmosphere changes considerably and dark clouds descend. And when Isaac is about two or three, Abraham throws a party. But Ishmael turns up. And Ishmael's the son that he had with Hagar, who was Sarah's Egyptian servant. And when Ishmael turns up, he gives Isaac a hard time. And that really upsets Sarah. Understandably. And so she tells her husband, get rid of them. Get rid of the slave woman. Get rid of Ishmael. And Abraham's devastated. And look at verse 11. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. I mean, how could any parent ever say to their own flesh and blood, get out of here and never come back? How does any mum or dad do that? And yet that is exactly what Sarah is asking Abraham to do. Get rid of your son. And Ishmael had been part of Abraham's life, some reckon at this stage, for about 15 or 16 years. And yes, he was a troubled child. The Bible tells us that. But he was still Abraham's boy. And so these are really difficult moments for this dad. And thankfully, God speaks into these dark moments as God often does. But what God actually says must be or may be a little unexpected because he begins by endorsing Sarah's request. He says to Abraham, Abraham, do what Sarah has told you to do. Get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. But then God offers an explanation plus a promise. Look at the second half of verse 12 and verse 13 because here's the explanation. Abraham, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's through Isaac that your descendants will come. But, and here's the promise, I will also make Ishmael into a nation. And that was something that God had promised to Abraham back in Genesis 17. You see, what we discover here is that God has a plan for Abraham, yes. God has a plan for Isaac, yes. God also, and I think we forget this sometimes, God also had a plan for Ishmael. God is in control of all their stories. 
God is working out his purposes in each of their lives. Those purposes and God's ways don't always make sense to us. They don't always sit comfortably with us. Certain details about those stories may even seem extreme. Like why does Ishmael and Hagar have to be sent away? Why must they be banished to a desolate desert? Why, God? And you could wrestle with questions like that. I know I do if I'm perfectly honest. As I read scriptures at times, I wrestle with these sort of things. And yet I've got to remember, you know, God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are so much high above. And last April, as we worked our way through this story, I showed you the sculpture by George Segal that he created in 1987 called Farewell to Ishmael. And using life-size sculptured figures, Segal tries to capture the human anguish and the pain of these moments in Genesis 21, verse 14. And you see Abraham in this sculpture embracing his firstborn. It's his final hug with his boy. And Hagar can't bring herself to watch. So she turns her back. And lurking behind the rock is Sarah, watching as what she wants becomes a reality. And the range of emotions that are displayed in this piece of art, I find them striking, deeply moving. It's hard to get your head around this scene. I shared this last year. I really struggle with this scene in Scripture. But the only conclusion that I can come to regarding Abraham's behavior in sending away Hagar and his firstborn, alone, with virtually nothing, a little bit of food, some water, that's all they're sent away with. But what that actually confirms, proves, reveals is that Abraham had total trust in God. God has promised to make my boy into a great nation. And what God says, he will do. God is in control of Ishmael's story and Ishmael's destiny. God's word is reliable and I am going to depend on it. And that's the challenge we still face today. And Hagar and Ishmael leave, and they wander in the desert of Beersheba. But as soon as they're gone, almost the scene deteriorates into a very deeply disturbing picture. Because in no time at all, the water is gone, and death is staring them both in the face. And mum can't bring herself to watch her son die. And so she places him under a tree and she walks away and she sits down and she cries her heart out. I want you to try, particularly any of you who are are a mum here this morning, I want you to try put yourself in Hagar's place. And just set one of your kids below a tree and leave them to die. And then we come across one of the most beautiful verses in the story. One of the most beautiful verses in all of scripture. Verse 17. God heard not Hagar crying, but he heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up, take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. You see, God hears the cry of the vulnerable. 
and the dying and the outcast and the excluded. And that's why last Sunday was so important for me because I believe, I have got to believe that God hears the cries of those kids in Burma and in Ethiopia and in Romania and in Moldova and in the Dominican Republic, etc. I've got to believe that. And that God doesn't just hear the cries of the vulnerable, but he responds through organization like Kids Alive, like Compassion, like Tear Fund. And how do they respond? They respond via people like us. And here in Genesis 22, in this barren desert, God hears the cry of the vulnerable. And he responds and he speaks via an angel words of comfort and words of hope. Do not be afraid, Hagar. I hear Ishmael's tears. Lift him up. Take him. I'm going to make him into a great nation. And here in the midst of mess, we know hope. And we find grace. And we find God. God has plans for Ishmael. God promises to make Ishmael a great nation. And once again, God delivers on his promises because Ishmael doesn't die here. God miraculously provides a well of water. And the text confirms to us that that Ishmael grows up with God as his constant companion. He becomes a brilliant archer. God provides for him a wife in Egypt. And Ishmael does indeed, as we all know, become the father of a great nation. Now, I know that we as Christians don't trace our spiritual lineage back to Ishmael. We trace it back to Isaac because we are children of Sarah, the free woman, as Paul calls her in Galatians 4. But in Genesis 21, we discover that although God did not choose Ishmael in the same way that he chose, or did not, yeah, did not choose Ishmael in the same way that he chose Isaac, God is still concerned about him, still accompanies him, still has a plan for him, still fulfills his purposes in Ishmael's life. Because God is a God of grace and a God of hope. He is the unchanging one, the faithful God. We're in the Genesis 22. And uh, as the story moves on, there's this huge, massive twist. Uh, and again, as I said last year... Uh, we are all familiar with this part of the story, but if you can, try to, try to put yourself or enter into the drama of these moments. Because Abraham faces a test, and it's a test of epic proportions. And it's not Abraham's first test, because throughout his story, right since Genesis 12, Abraham has faced countless tests. Some he has come through, some he hasn't, some he has really messed up on. But the critical issue is that via every test, his faith is being refined. His faith is being strengthened. You see, it's not just about whether you pass or fail the inevitable testing that you will go through. It's primarily, primarily about what you learn in light of and through that experience. Because testing is part and parcel of the Christian life. And I know we sometimes wonder, why God is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? And the only answer that I can offer based on God's word is that testing is a key aspect of the discipleship process. James writes in the New Testament, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. That's why God tests us. It's to strengthen us, to fortify our faith, to deepen our commitment. It's never just for the sake of it. There's always a reason. There's always a big picture. As Stuart Briscoe comments, 
Faith is matured through the experience of stressful testing. In much the same way as the cardiovascular system is strengthened through exercise and the muscles are developed by pumping iron. But in Genesis 22, the nature of Abraham's test is breathtaking. Take your son, says God. Your only son, and you may want to question God on that one. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. And Abraham must have wondered, what is going on? The son that he loves, the son that he and Sarah had waited for, had longed for, for years, 25 at least, maybe even more years than that, is going to be taken away from him in such a violent manner. The surrounding people groups, those who worshipped foreign gods, did sick stuff like this. But to think that Yahweh was condoning this practice must have really sent shockwaves through Abraham, this friend of God. And one of the really surprising aspects of this for me is there's, there's no recorded comeback. There's no protest. There's no questioning on Abraham's part. There's just nothing between verses 2 and 3 of Genesis 22. Abraham just sets out to do what he's told. He gets up the next morning, it says. He cuts up enough wood for the required task. And he sets off with two servants and Isaac for the place that God told him to go. And I find that unbelievable. And they walk for three days. And then the four of them stop because it's only Abraham and Isaac that can embark on the final leg of their journey. But then comes the phrase. Then comes a phrase that gives us some insight into Abraham's mindset and his depth of faith. It's verse 5. Because here's what he says to the servants. We will worship. And get this. And then we will come back to you. Now how is that going to happen? How are the two of them going to come back? Given what Abraham has just been instructed to do, to sacrifice his son, how can he say to his servants, we will worship and then we will come back to you? The writer of Hebrews offers this explanation. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered up Isaac as a sacrifice, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Now, it seems that Abraham was somehow convinced that God was going to step in and God was going to do something. Abraham believed, listen, if I have to go through with this, if I have to kill my son, God is somehow still going to fulfill his purposes through him. And it doesn't take a genius to realize that for those purposes to be fulfilled, it needed a living, breathing Isaac. His life had to be preserved. A dead Isaac was an unthinkable conclusion to this story. And therefore, I can only conclude that Abraham believed that God had the power to raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. But remember, up to this point in the biblical narrative, nobody has been raised from the dead. We have no record of it. Abraham had no previous examples to refer to. We have scripture, we have the story, we can refer to lots of occasions when people were raised from the dead. Abraham didn't. 
According to Hebrews, Abraham believed that God had the power to do the unlikely. Now, does that remove the horror of these moments? I don't think it does. Because with every step closer to the place of sacrifice, surely Abraham's heart must have been beating faster and faster. But what verse 5 does for me is that it helps me to come to terms with a dad intent on following through with the unimaginable. Because here was a dad who was prepared to do this because he actually somehow believed that God was going to bring his son back to life again. Abraham knows that even physical death is not the end. And so he says to his servants, we will come back. And that is challenging because it reveals amazing faith. Trust and hope in God. Plus it confirms that here was someone who was sold out for God. Total obedience. Irrespective of the personal cost. And why would God ask Abraham to do that? It's not the issue. Abraham never appears to ask that obvious question. Abraham simply believes because he knows that his God is the all-knowing, all-seeing, faithful God whose ways are not our ways, who is the God of the impossible, and therefore Abraham knows, listen, God's going to work out his purposes. Somehow, God's going to work out his purposes here. And that belief is not just head knowledge. It's not just simple mental assent. It's actually fleshed out in practice. It's in visible form. Abraham's faith, and this is really what I, I want to sort of say in, in closing this morning, but Abraham's faith was not some dead orthodoxy. It was not some lifeless belief system. His faith was not expressed in empty words that meant nothing or cost nothing. Abraham's faith was deep, it was real, it was genuine, and therefore it was backed up by, it was reinforced by, it was confirmed by his actions. Actions like the setting out with Isaac, the cutting up off the wood, the traveling for three days, the going the last leg with just Isaac, the building off the altar, the arranging off the wood, the binding off Isaac, the raising off the knife. Actions, multiple actions that confirmed his faith was real. It was a man whose faith was tangible, touchable, genuine, authentic. Which is exactly why James writes this in his apostle. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Faith not accompanied by actions is dead or at the very least faith not accompanied by actions is incomplete. And that's challenging. That's why what we do really, really matters. Faith and action have got to work together. Otherwise, there is an alarming disconnect. There is a serious credibility gap. gap. There has got to be a definite correlation between what we believe and how we behave. 
And in the midst of this severely testing experience, Abraham's lip service is backed up by his life practice. And I find that really challenging. Because I can say lots. I can claim to believe lots. I can have every I dotted and T crossed in terms of my doctrine and my theology and my orthodoxy. And yet you see if my faith is not backed up by actions, it's incomplete. Abraham was considered righteous by what he did. Now I know that faith alone saves, but faith and action working together reveals authenticity. Genuine faith will always include active expression. Otherwise, I think we have every right to call into question the reality of faith. I often wonder what was going on in Isaac's head as he takes these final few steps. I kind of think I know what's going on in Abraham's head, but what's going on in Isaac's head? He did query his dad on one occasion as they made that journey. He did say, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And his dad did give him an answer of sorts. But you know, as Abraham grabs his son, now remember, Abraham is well over 100 years of age, so Isaac could easily have resisted him. Easily have resisted him. And yet it seems that Isaac just simply lies there and watches as his dad binds him and watches as his dad raises the knife prepared to take his life. What was he thinking? See, if Abraham's faith in action was tangible, then Isaac's obedience and trust was incredible. And we all know what happens next because God takes these two men right to the wire. But at the very last minute, he intervenes and an angel steps in and says to Abraham, do you know something now? I know that you fear God. Now, I don't think that means that God discovered something about Abraham in these moments that he didn't know. I mean, we believe God is all-knowing. So it's not a case of all of a sudden God goes, ah, now I've discovered something about you, Abraham. See, God is all-knowing. God knew what was going to happen. But I do think Abraham discovered lots about the reality of his own faith through this experience. Abraham now knows, I am committed. I do truly fear God in the right sense. Which leaves us with just a final heart-searching question. What are you discovering about your faith in the midst of the tests that you're currently facing? What are you learning about yourself, your faith, and your commitment to God as you wrestle with your life-stretching challenges? And I know there are people sitting here this morning, and you are facing some real challenges, personal level, business level, family level, faith level. What are you learning about yourself and about God and about your commitment to God in the midst of all that? We all know where the story goes from here. A ram's provided, sacrificed instead of Isaac. And then God repeats the amazing promises that he gave to Abraham 50 years earlier. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And we're back to where we started this morning. God's true to his word. God always keeps his promises. And that's, for now anyway, Abraham's story done and dusted. 
James is going to pick up Jacob's story this evening. But you know, in Abraham's story you find high moments, low points, disturbing examples of compromise, as well as amazing expressions of faith. Huge tests right along the way. And as we finish this morning, as we're about to take communion, I want to suggest that for anybody here who's been a Christian for any length of time, that's your story. There's been ups, there have been downs, there have been mistakes, there's been obedience, there have been twists, there have been turns, there have been testings. And all along, here's what I just want to say to you. God's been with you. God is for you. God is urging you to go on. God wants you to grow in your faith so that your faith may be made complete by what you do as you walk out these doors and enter another week.